Manipulation. It is a loaded word. The dictionary defines it as the ability to control or play upon by artful, unfair or insidious means, especially to one's own advantage. Now, this is a fairly broad description and it leads to a few questions. Do advertisements have the ability to manipulate us? Can government messages manipulate us? Will a billboard on the tube manipulate you? Regardless of your opinion, it's clear that each of these types of communications can influence us and not always to our own advantage. Let's take an example. You walk into a Nike store just with the goal of having a look around and you breathe in the scent of freshly unpacked shoes. Is this manipulation? Well, maybe. Because Nike has reported that adding the new shoes scent to an environment made 84% of customers more likely to purchase shoes and made those customers willing to pay 10 to 15% more for the same product just because they were breathing in that new shoes scent. And it's not just Nike shoes either. A London nightclub found that sales of the drink Malibu more than doubled when a coconut fragrance was diffused in the club. And Novotel, the hotel chain, increased breakfast, coffee and pastry sales by diffusing a coffee scent in the lobby in the morning. This might be a form of manipulation, encouraging customers to buy in an artful way. But manipulation doesn't start and finish with coffee sales and Malibu drinkers. It can sway far larger decisions. Research on the search engine manipulation effect has found that Google's rankings of results on political candidates can shift the voting preference of swing voters by up to 20%. A candidate that appears first on Google appears to get more votes. Fact is, all of us can be manipulated. Subtle nudges can change our decisions without our awareness. Today, with my guest, Patrick Fagan, we'll share methods you can use to avoid this manipulation, to help you, as Patrick puts it, free your mind from manipulation. All of that coming up after this ad break, which I'll be honest, is also designed to subtly manipulate you. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, ad break over. I hope you are not too manipulated. Today, I'm chatting with Patrick Fagan. Patrick is a behavioral scientist with 12 years of experience in emotional sciences and data analytics. Here he is introducing himself. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Patrick. Sometimes I ask people to call me Pat, but please don't because I hate that just between us. Um, but the reason I say that is there's some research showing that people who use a shorter name or a nickname are seen as more popular and more cheerful, which I think is where I produce the most help. Um, and that's the kind of thing I do as a, as a behavioral scientist is take academic psychological theory uh, and think about how to practically apply it, like optimizing your own name or, of course, websites, adverts and so on. Uh, I have a foot in academia. I'm a part-time lecturer. I've, I've co-authored some peer-reviewed papers on things ranging from 
Facebook psychology to facial expressions and a few things in between. Um, I was previously the lead psychologist at Cambridge Analytica. Uh, very important caveat, I was in the commercial team, not the political team. Um, so I think the most unethical thing I did was use targeted advertising for bottled water. Um, but I learned the, the, the kit of how to read people from their data points and then use that for targeted messaging and targeted nudging, which is really what I do now. Um, and I have a, a couple of consultancies where we do that. I think it's safe to say that Patrick knows a little bit about manipulation. Cambridge Analytica, Patrick's previous employer, is accused of manipulating the results of both the Trump and Brexit elections. But I'm still a bit of a naysayer. I'm not so sure that I'm being manipulated. I have free will, right? Well, I asked Patrick. We are bombarded with a lot of persuasion attempts, even when you get up in the morning and you look at the branded cereal box, that's a persuasion attempt. The, the data on this is quite hard to come by, but uh, one estimated that we are faced with the equivalent of 174 newspapers worth of information every day. Um, some studies have estimated, you know, we see thousands of adverts in a day, but again, they're, they're rough estimates and that's probably quite high, but it's a lot. Um, and Really, all forms of communication are designed to persuade in some way. Propaganda is something that propagates an idea. That's what communication is. So even this conversation, even what I'm saying now, I'm putting words in a certain order in order to kind of influence your mind and influence how you think about things. Um, so everything really in that sense is manipulation. But I think what's changed recently is probably the scale and the sophistication of these manipulation attempts. Thanks to technology, thanks to advances in behavioral science. So that's the context we're in currently. So we're constantly bombarded with persuasion attempts. But do they really have an impact? I asked Patrick for an example, and he told me about a cybersecurity expert that he interviewed for his book. He received a letter from his bank, um, seemingly from his bank, but it had all these kind of tells that it was a phishing attempt. So they were really kind of trying to pressure him for information. They were using scarcity, you know, must act now, um, social proof, authority, all of these nudges to get him to comply. And he was like, oh, this is a phishing attempt. Um, so he phoned the, the bank up and eventually they said, no, 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 that was from us. So even the, the so-called good guys are using these nudges. So, so much so you can't really tell uh, who's who. The bad guys and the good guys are both using them. I should clarify my position here. I host a podcast called Nudge. I share how nudges work and how to use them. Obviously, I don't think that nudges are inherently bad, but I'm aware that they can be used in manipulative ways. I'm also aware that the use of nudges is now commonplace. As Patrick says, banks use them extensively in their communications with customers. And this bombardment of nudges is having an effect on us, at least according to Patrick. I mean, there's a, a saying among evolutionary psychologists that our modern skulls house a stone age brain. Um, so we have these kind of caveman, cavewoman biases, emotions that are ingrained in us. And even though we're in a very sophisticated age, we're still very much driven by emotion and by bias. Um, maybe even more so, there's some research showing that this information and emotion overload of the internet uh, makes us more irrational, which feels right doesn't really seem surprising um, and there's some nice studies showing that for example the more people use the google search function on their smartphone the less thought they put into answering questions 
uh, or if you ask some difficult questions, they're more likely to, in a reaction time task, recognize the word Google, because when they're asked a hard question, they think, oh, I'll just Google that. So anyway, this technology, we're kind of outsourcing our thinking to it. Uh, now, maybe you can get a level of immunity if you can spot the techniques. There's some research showing that can give you some protection uh, against them, but it's not um, total. Uh, number one, because you can't have your guard up all the time. You can't be consciously and carefully processing every bit of information throughout the day. It's just not possible. Um, and number two, uh, in the same way that you can't unsee an optical illusion. So in the same way, you might know about scarcity, but if I showed you a diamond and I told you De Beers artificially restrict the world supply, uh, to make them scarce and therefore valuable, rationally you go, yeah, yeah, okay. But you'd still want the diamond, right? You'd still fall for the for the bias. I think the point here is that the volume of nudges and persuasion attempts in the wild are greater than ever before. We are constantly influenced by these nudges, making us value diamonds more than we should. And constantly putting up with persuasion attempts has an effect on us. To explain how persuasion attempts play out in the real world, Patrick gave me an interesting example. He shared a story about wild pigs and how the persuasion attempts used on these pigs are similar to the persuasion attempts used on us. There is a company in the US, uh, uh, Jaeger Pro, I think, but their job essentially is pest control, um, particularly to do with wild pigs who are more of a pest than I realized, but they eat crops and even newborn lambs apparently and terrorize tourists and so on. Um, and so they have this system to catch these uh, wild pigs so they can be um, dispatched. And the system is they find the uh, the place, the field where the pigs like to go and, and find out what they like to eat. And they set up uh, a big cage with a an entrance in the field. And they scatter some peanuts or whatever the pigs like to eat um, outside of the cage. Obviously, the pigs pigs are quite smart. They're not going to go into the cage. They don't trust it. Um, but they will eat the peanuts outside where it's safe. And then, you know, over time, they kind of get used to the presence of the cage. And then what they do, not the pigs, the, the, the pest control people, is then they'll start to slowly scatter the, the peanuts inside the cage. And the pigs, especially the younger ones who are a bit more foolhardy, will start to kind of go into the cage to eat the peanuts because they're used to it now. And then they'll see, okay, inside slightly inside the cage, it's still safe, I can eat here. And gradually the pest control people lure them further and further in over the days with the peanuts. The pigs get used to it. Uh, and eventually one day they'll all be inside the cage and the pest control people flick a switch. The, the door comes down and they're, they're trapped inside and that's it. So wild pigs are convinced to enter the cage, not through discipline or force, but through subtle conditioning. It sounds like something us humans wouldn't fall for, but Patrick's not so sure. He says this exact strategy is used to persuade humans. Um, and so this is a nice illustration of the foot in the door technique, or um, I guess you could call it the trotter in the door technique in, in this case. But it's about slowly acclimatizing people to things, uh, getting them there through gradual increments. So. Uh, you don't take someone straight up to the penthouse without taking them through the lobby first, uh, is a nice way of putting it, maybe. And so there are lots of examples of, of how this is used kind of socially. One example from the past is income tax, which was introduced as a temporary emergency measure originally. 
Um, and it kind of went away and came back again over several decades. I think it wasn't until about 100 years later where it was officially formalized uh, in Parliament. Uh, and it's just, you know, got, got bigger since then in increments, of course. Then uh, maybe a bit more spicy example uh, is vaccine passports in, in recent history. Uh, in the UK, at least, the politicians said at least 11 separate times they said that they would ne- they would not bring in vaccine passports. They had no plan to do so. And then uh, then the uh, I think it was the vaccines minister, Nadim Zahawi, uh, then he was like, well, we should at least think about using them. Um, so it went from denying it, which is the first step on the journey, because you think, OK, they're not going to do it. But you start to process it. It becomes palatable. It goes from unthinkable to thinkable. Then it's another increment to, well, let's debate it. And then eventually they were, of course, um, brought in uh, for, for nightclubs and so on. Now, they have gone away again, but so did income tax originally. Um, so it's this kind of gradual up and down pattern uh, which makes people more likely to accept something. To condition someone to a radical change, the foot-in-the-door technique seems to work very well. First, politicians denied I'll ever consider something. Then, politicians debate that thing. And after long enough, the politicians do the thing. Take working from home. Most companies today are forcing staff back into the office, but many didn't implement these return-to-work policies overnight. They started by denying. Take Meta, the company that owns Facebook. In July 2021, they shifted their policy to let all permanent staff work remotely for good. That was what they announced. Then they started to debate whether it would be worth having more staff back in the office. In March 2023, Zuckerberg asked employees to to find more opportunities to work with their colleagues in person. And then they actioned it. On June 1st, Meta forced all employees who are assigned to an office to return for three days a week. Deny, debate, do. A simple execution of the the foot-in-the-door technique that can persuade people to radical change. But it's not the only tool in the persuasion box. Interestingly, the exact opposite principle, the door-in-the-face technique, can work just as well. The 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 foot-in-the-door technique is where you ask for something small first, and then that builds by increments to the big main request. The the door-in-the-face technique is where you go beyond the target request and ask something really big that people are very unlikely to say yes to. Um, And then you ask for your original request, which is smaller by comparison. And people are therefore more likely to say yes. Perhaps they feel a bit guilty for saying no to the first one. And also it seems more reasonable by comparison. It's anchoring. Um, So an example in research, and I'm a little bit hazy on the details, but it was something like they asked participants, will you donate one day, one weekend, every week for the next month for this volunteering course? And most of them said no, that was a big ask. Um, and then they said, okay, well, we do just one day throughout the whole month. And then people are more likely to say yes, because they said no to the big ask first. Patrick's referring to Robert Cialdini's 1975 study from Arizona State University. In his experiment, Cialdini approached people on a university campus and asked them whether they should volunteer for two hours at the local youth detention centre. Not many people agreed. Only 17% said, yes, I'll do that. 
Next, he approached a different sample of people, but this time with a much more extreme appeal. He said, would you volunteer two hours a week for the next two years? It was such an extreme request that every single person who was asked declined. But Cialdini then followed up with a second question. He asked them, okay, you won't do that, but will you give up two hours of your time just to help on one afternoon? And this time, 50% of them agreed. So he went from 17% of people agreeing to help for two hours to 50% of people agreeing to help for two hours. People were three times more likely to comply if they had just been asked to make a more sizable commitment. That's the science behind this door-in-the-face technique. But what about a real-world example? Well, Patrick shared a very good one. Uh, so I used to be in a hair metal band uh, many years ago, one of my favourite genres. And there's the band Motley Crue, and they have quite a raunchy video for their song Girls, Girls, Girls. It's set in a strip club. And when they were making the video, they were like, oh, MTV will never let this on air. It's too raunchy. So what they did was they made a, like a really raunchy version uh, I think where women were topless and so forth. And they sent that first. And obviously MTV said, definitely not. And they said, okay, well, how about this toned down version then? Which was actually the one that they wanted. Um, so that was quite a clever use of the door in the face technique. Foot in the door and door in the face, two techniques that are proven to change behavior. But these aren't even the most effective persuasion techniques that Patrick's aware of. No, he'll share those after this quick break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Okay, welcome back to the show. Now we've covered conditioning, we've covered the door in the face technique and the foot in the door technique. But these persuasion techniques are small fish for Patrick. He says the most effective persuasion techniques are much more commonplace. Here he is walking through them. Uh, one is, and you see this kind of neglected, I think, or underused in behavioral science a lot, but um, it's motivations. Uh, so that there are all sorts of fancy nudges and ways of framing information, but what do people actually want? Um, and that's really one of the, probably one of the most effective recommendations I make when I'm dealing with clients in the business world is, well, think what's in it for me, for your customers. How can you engage them? Yes, functionally, you know, they might want to save money, but more often than not, it's emotionally, they're looking for peace of mind and so on. And so on a mass scale, um, I just read this book by Jacques Ellul called Propaganda. And uh, really, propaganda is somewhat the propaganda itself, but it's also probably just as much the propaganda, so the kind of desires and insecurities and anxieties or whatever that they have 
within themselves often repressed as well. So propaganda is kind of like a lightning rod for that that inner emotional energy to come out and it directs it in a particular direction. Um, so that's probably one of the main ones is working out what people's uh, anxieties are and then using that to channel their behavior. And obviously, you see this in politics constantly. I mean, Trump is a great example of how he um, he kind of galvanized people's fears about, I don't know, changing demographics and immigrations and things. So that's that's one thing. Uh, another thing, of course, is is norms. Um, so setting the perception of what's normal, default, um, sanctioned by authority. And there's a great quote, which I'll probably butcher, and I can't even remember who it was. But they said, propaganda is not about changing what you think. It's about changing what you think other people think uh, and creating this perception of what is normal, what everyone else is doing, what you should be doing, that kind of thing. Um, so that probably is one of the main things that I see used on a mass scale. And you see this in, uh, for example, the Behavioral Insights team, the Nudge Unit. Uh, they released this report, I think, in conjunction with Sky, where they're talking about how to get net zero and, and climate nudges into the news and soap operas. Um, and this is, I'm not making any comment on on climate change or anything like that, but just the use of the, the techniques. By having, let's say you're watching EastEnders and they start talking about the climate, that is making it normal. It's a very strong normalization technique. I just wanted to pause here and share a little bit more on social norms, because like Patrick says, there is plenty of evidence behind the effectiveness of this technique. These norm-nudging techniques were first introduced by Cialdini and his colleagues who experimented with sending descriptive messages or norm-based messages to curb littering in a variety of contexts. So some would see a descriptive message, for example, recycling can save the environment, and others would see a social norm message. So, for example, most of your neighbours recycle. Social norms works far better. Stating most of your neighbours recycle encouraged far more people to recycle than the descriptive message. Other examples of this principle in action include alerting taxpayers that the majority of taxpayers pay on time, comparing electricity consumption to that of your neighbours to reduce the consumption, or telling hotel guests that most other guests reuse their unwashed towels. All of these interventions were at least temporarily successful in Cialdini's studies. My favourite example of social norms dictating behaviour, however, comes from Dave Trott's book. He shares stats about penalties in European football. That's soccer for those in the US, but it's football over here, so I'll refer to it as football. In this study, someone analysed 965 penalties taken across 10 seasons. Now, 168 had been saved by goalkeepers, that's 17.4%, and most of these saves happened when the goalkeeper dived to their left or right. But the most surprising statistic from this analysis showed that if the goalkeeper hadn't dived, if the goalkeeper had simply stayed in the middle of the goal, stood in the middle of the goal, they would have saved 33% of penalties. See, 33% of penalties are hit straight down the middle. They are hit directly down the middle of the goal. And if the goalies stayed still, they'd save more than if they dived. So the question is, why don't goalkeepers just stand still and double the amount of saves? Dave Trott says it's down to social norms. Basically, if we perform to the expected norm and it works, we get greater appreciation. If we go against the norm and it fails, we get greater disappointment. So the safest route 
is to perform as the crowd expects. If we succeed, it's great. And even if we fail, it's not too bad. The norm for the goalkeeper is making spectacular dives, not standing still. Trot says that crowds don't do statistics. They would rather see a goalkeeper diving across the goal than simply standing still. The goalie that stands still for every penalty is a goalie that's lamented by the crowd for not trying. Norms dictate our actions, and they can be used to persuade. But there is one more technique, in addition to norms and motivation, that has the power to persuade the masses. And then the third thing uh, is kind of maybe saliency is the best way uh, to describe it, but it's, it's focusing people's attention on a particular topic. So we're all cognitive misers. There's only so much we can pay attention to and process in the world. Famously, uh, I think Boris Johnson and one of his advisors had this metaphor of putting a dead cat on the table. So if there's a story that's bad for you as a politician, just distract people with something else, put a dead cat on the table and people start talking about that instead because we can only focus on one thing at a time. Um, and so through kind of controlling or influencing the news and their perception of reality uh, and their behavior. Um, the, the universe is infinitely big. You know, there's a huge amount of information out there. So, so we're, our attention is very narrowly focused. And of course, you can use that for changing what people do and how they think. Motivations, norms, and salience. Patrick states that these three persuasion techniques can change what people do. But I wanted an example. I wanted Patrick to share a real-world attempt to persuade the masses to get all of us to do something that we don't want to do. He shared a juicy example, encouraging the world to eat insects. Uh, eating insects is a really interesting example because basically nobody wants to do it, and yet it's still being kind of pushed in media and the press and from, from government and NGOs and celebrities. But people aren't clamoring for this. So, for example, the BBC obviously, uh, sorry, not obviously, but sometimes occasionally come out with uh, articles about the merits of eating insects. But I can't imagine anyone sitting around at home writing letters to the BBC asking for more articles about eating insects. So it's clearly a kind of top-down agenda, which is very interesting. But yet nobody really wants to eat insects. There is this statistic that goes around that says 2 billion people eat insects um, actually, there's an academic paper that has kind of debunked it and says it's not true. It's it's an estimate and it's probably wildly exaggerated. But it's an interesting example of framing because uh, when they say that 2 billion people eat insects, first of all, uh, they're presenting it as an absolute number rather than a percentage. If they said that 25% of the population uh, eat insects, that sounds a lot less impressive than 2 billion people. Um, and secondly, uh, it's an example of framing where you could equally say 6 billion people don't eat insects uh, and that that you know makes it seem a lot less appealing. So that's one nudge that's used. Also, the choice of insects seems to be a nudge. Um, so often it's cricket, which is phonetically similar to chicken. And, you know, crickets, you probably think of, say, Jiminy Cricket from Pinocchio. They're kind of cute uh, in our minds. Or mealworms, which have the word meal in, so they're kind of ready to be made into food almost. Uh, they don't seem to make products from spiders or wasps or centipedes, which are a lot less pleasant, but are just as equally as nutritious uh, or not. Um, so there's that. And then probably the main one is uh, obfuscation. Uh, so kind of the opposite of saliency. 
But a bit like there's some research showing that if you take away the pound sign from a price, people are more likely to buy because it seems less like a <clears throat> like a spend, which is psychologically painful. And so in the same way, uh, they found through research that people are more likely to eat insects if you don't remind people that it's insects. So for example, don't put the word insects on the front, don't put pictures of insects on the front, um, maybe use euphemisms like micro livestock uh, and most importantly of all, uh, people are more likely to, for example, eat bread that's got cricket powder in it than they are to eat whole crickets because it's, it seems less like insects. And then there's a foot in the door technique where once people have eaten bread with cricket powder in and they've gone, oh, that's not so bad, then they're more likely to follow through and, and eat insects themselves. Now, I don't think Patrick is particularly terrified about all of us having to eat insects. He's just using it as an example to show how persuasion techniques can work on the masses, which leads to an important final question. How do we defend against persuasion attempts? How do we keep our free will and resist manipulation? I asked Patrick. Well, if you don't want to be manipulated, it's a bit tough because uh, everything is manipulation. Um, and even you know, your best bet could be to maybe join a monastery or to live in a flotation tank in Siberia. But otherwise, you're constantly going to be interacting with people and therefore um, influenced in some way. Um, there is a bit of power in that, however, in that you can choose your illusion, which is one of our chapters. You can choose who you're influenced by. Uh, you know, instead of following angry people on Twitter, you can follow people who are experts in health or money and you can improve your mindset and your way of living. There's power in that. Uh, but if you're interacting with people, as of course you must, and watching the news, for example, as you should, and adverts, as you probably will, there are certain things you can do to reduce your susceptibility. Um, so the first is, and it sounds quite obvious, but just reduce your level of exposure to things that might uh, influence you. So we, in we interviewed a magician for the book, and I asked, how do you not get tricked by magicians? And his answer was very simple. It was, don't go to the circus. Um, so if you don't want to be influenced by this stuff, just kind of cut it back a bit. So watch TV a bit less, uh, mute the adverts when they come on, use social media a bit less, and then you'll kind of build your own uh, psychological integrity a bit more. There is a level of immunity, as I said. If you learn the techniques, you're more likely to spot them and resist them. Just interjecting here, because I think this is an interesting point. Patrick shares how learning nudges can help you resist them. It's an important point with some scientific backing. In a 2022 study, researchers from the University of Cambridge crafted YouTube videos outlining common manipulation tactics found online. Participants who watched these videos were significantly less likely to trust or share tweets that contained the techniques. So it does seem that educating ourselves about persuasion techniques can, at least a bit, reduce their potency. Patrick has got some other tips as well. Um, there are things you can do to kind of increase your, your, your rationality a little bit and make yourself more aware. So meditation, there's a study showing that it could reduce susceptibility to cognitive bias. Reading is also a good one, especially if there's information you need to process. Try to get it in writing rather than image and especially video because these engage you more emotionally and don't really give you the space to think and to digest that that reading does. Um, also watch out for what we call blips in the book. So this is when you're in a weakened state, you're more likely to be influenced. So it could be on a micro level. It could be if you're hungry or tired or stressed, uh, you're more likely to be influenced because your guard is down. 
Um, or it could be on a larger level. If you've just gone through a divorce or, or moved to a new area or something, maybe don't uh, go to a confidence building course at that time because you're, you're more likely to, to kind of be swept away. And then it can happen really on a macro level. Uh, Naomi Klein has a great book on this called The Shock Doctrine. Uh, when the society goes through a big shock, like a pandemic or uh, Brexit or a war or natural disaster, whatever it might be, people are more pliable for new ideologies in that time. Um, so watch out for being hungry, tired and so on, because that's when you're more vulnerable. Also, uh, we have a chapter called Stand for Something or Fall for Anything. Uh, and this is about how, for example, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses in prisoner of war camps were less likely to be brainwashed because they had this ideology that they could kind of cling to for security as an anchor. But on a smaller level, if you have some kind of plan, you're less likely to be influenced. So if you go into the supermarket with a shopping list, or if you go into a casino with a budget in mind, you're less likely to get swept away by whatever's around you at the time. Um, so there's more to it in the book, obviously, but I think that's a, a high-level overview of how to resist these things. All right, folks, that is all we have time for today. Now, personally, I'm in two minds about whether large swathes of people can really be dramatically manipulated by propaganda, government messages and advertising. But I've got to admit that Patrick shares some compelling evidence that it is possible, or at least it's being attempted. If you enjoyed today's topic, then I think you'll love Patrick's book, Co-authored with Laura Dobsworth, their book, Free Your Mind, explores the new world of manipulation and how to avoid it. I've dropped a link to the book in the show notes if you fancy picking it up. If you want more from me, please do follow me on LinkedIn. I'm Phil Agnew on there. And please do subscribe to the Nudge newsletter. Subscribers get a behavioral science tip every Friday. Okay, thanks so much for listening, folks. I'll be back next week with another episode of Nudge. Cheers.